This is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. Alright guys, we are... uh really lucky today to have uh, Iona Craig of The uh, Intercept here to uh, sit and listen to some of our headlines and to uh, talk about the Middle East and especially about Yemen. Um, Iona is a, uh, she's a British-Irish freelance investigative journalist. Since 2010, her work has focused on Yemen and the Arabian Peninsula. Iona was based in, how do you say that? Sayana? Sanaa, yes. Sanaa. From 2010 through 2014, as uh, the Times of London Yemen correspondent, covering Yemen's revolution, America's growing covert war in the country, and the civil war that began in 2014. Since March 2015, Iona has been the only international journalist to repeatedly cross the front lines to report on both sides of Yemen's ongoing conflict and humanitarian crisis. She regularly returns to the country and to date has traveled over 5,000 miles across Yemen during the course of the war. Her work from Yemen has won seven awards, including a 2018 George Polk Award for her investigation into a Navy SEAL raid in the Yemeni village of Al-Gail, and the 2016 Orwell Prize for Journalism for her Yemen coverage. In 2014, she received the Martha Gellhorn Prize and the Frontline Club Award for print journalism for her undercover investigative reportive work on U.S. drone strikes. She's also the spokesperson for the Yemen Data Project, which collates and disseminates data on the conduct of the war in Yemen with the purpose of increasing transparency and promoting accountability of the actors involved. YDP has been collating data on the Saudi coalition air campaign in Yemen since March 2015. In conjunction with the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, while that was a mouthful, YDP is also collecting data on political violence and protest events across the country. Iona, welcome to Fortress on a Hill. We're really glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, we're lucky enough that uh, that you've agreed to sit through our, our headlines and maybe even contribute a little bit as we talk about what's new uh, in, in U.S. foreign policy news uh, in the annals of U.S. militarism, as we've come to call it. And uh, it's just really exciting to have you on. I have to tell you, I don't know if you have much of a relationship with the British Army. Do you have any connection, family or friends to the British Army? No, I don't, actually. Well, my, my very brief impression working with the British on a number of occasions is that they're, uh, while imperfect, they're a brighter lot than most American soldiers, I have to say. So uh, I don't know if that's a, a good or a bad thing. But my experience working with the British, especially last year on a staff exercise, was they were Number one, uh, a little bit more thoughtful than the average uh, pickup truck driving American soldier and, uh, and a little funnier. So that, that, that was a positive impression. And uh, unfortunately, the British Army usually follows us on our crusades around the Middle East. Uh, so there's a loyalty, if not intelligence, there. Yeah, um, you have a bigger and, and uh, richer army than, than the UK these days. <laughs> that's right. Well, I, you know, they, that's what they said to me was that they make up an intellectualism, what we have in bombs and money and defense spending. <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, I had a really great experience uh, with them and sort of learned a lot. You know, my first 
headline today, guys, is, uh, as you know, I like to pick big topics that are way broader than, than most of the stuff that Henry comes up with, uh, whether that's a good or bad thing. But my first article is from Admiral James Savridis, and he writes for Time Magazine now. He's a former commander of U.S. Pacific Command. And uh, this article appeared in Time, where he does regular weekly columns now. And it's called, China Isn't America's Enemy, At Least Not Yet. And this really connects to an article I published just today, uh, which is uh, March 13th, in Antiwar.com, about how I really believe that we are overplaying and getting extremely alarmist about the threat from Russia and China. When you look at the national defense strategy that was just put out by the Trump administration, it calls Russia and China revisionist powers, quote unquote. It says that they are out for essentially conquest in the world, that they're competitors. It essentially declares a new Cold War. And here we've got James Stavridis, former four-star admiral, former commander uh, uh, of U.S. troops in Europe, saying, you know, China isn't necessarily America's enemy yet. We're not headed towards a war with China. In fact, in some ways, our interests are more likely to converge than diverge with them overall. And let's be frank, our economies are deeply intertwined. The competition might be fierce, but all this talk of inevitable war and balancing and strategic competition, it really lays us on the path to not only a new Cold War, but possibly a new hot war. And, and that's deeply concerning. Whenever you hear U.S. politicians, mainstream left and mainstream right wing, talk about China, it always comes down to the same things, doesn't it? Chinese claims in the South China Sea, all about how they're bullying the other countries in the South China Sea, how dare they you know, bring their ships or their planes close to U.S. ships in the South China Sea? Now, I think there's certainly something to be concerned about there. But let's remember, the South China Sea for China is the Caribbean Sea for the United States. That's their neighborhood. Why should we be surprised that China has ships or planes in the South China Sea? We have complete hegemony in the Western Hemisphere, not just in the Caribbean, but also in the North Atlantic and the Eastern Pacific. Stavridis talks about how that we do have some shared interests. We both want Kim Jong-un to uh, denuclearize the peninsula. We both should be working together on climate change, although the Trump administration has recently pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords. We do medical diplomacy and both have hospital ships that go around the world, specifically in Africa, dealing with humanitarian catastrophes. Overall, though, most Republican and Democratic mainstream politicians Look at China as an enemy. And I can't help but wonder why that is and what a better strategy would be as we move forward in our relationship with China. Iona, could you talk to us at all about, you know, how, how is Britain's relationship with China and what is the what is the political discourse like regarding the rise of China, you know, in your mainstream networks? Well, I think now because of the issue of Brexit in the UK, of course, um, the, the UK is now going around to various countries internationally looking for stronger relationships um, for investment purposes and for trade. Uh, and certainly in the UK, um, the prime minister here has done a recent trip to China, uh, Theresa May. And that was obviously with the main aim of forging better trading relations because Britain is about to leave or in the process of leaving the European Union. So those kind of relationships are going to become increasingly more important. Um, and I think uh, the UK is actually playing catch up really with China. 
Um, it hasn't been uh, as strong in trying to forge those business ties over the last few years. And now it is pretty desperate to do so. Um, but I don't think uh, anybody here sees China is, is a, as a threat in the same way um, as perhaps in the US. Um, obviously, the whole Russia thing has taken on a, uh, a different um, sense, particularly in the last few days here in the UK with the attempted murders um, in, in the town of Salisbury in the UK. Right. So, that have, have since now the finger has been pointed at definitely at Russia as being responsible for those via a nerve agents. So, yes, the, the Russia... The, the, the perception of Russia is very different to that of China. China is seen um, more as a potential um, in bigger investor and, and trading partner, whereas particularly now in the, in the last week or so, um, Russia, the relationship with Russia is on a very different footing. Right. That's that's really interesting how you break down the, the different viewpoint from you know London as opposed to from Washington. I often think that the United States is wedded to old thinking on China, whereas perhaps most of our partners in Europe or in the United Kingdom getting ready to leave Europe are a little more forward thinking. I know that, you know, China's working on this broader economic cooperation across Central Asia all the way into Europe. And the United States actually tried to convince our allies, including the UK, not to sign on for, you know, China's investment, uh, Silk Road plans on infrastructure. And pretty much all of our allies, UK, Australia, other partners in the, the South uh, South Pacific have all gone against U.S. policy and said, listen, get on board. China's growing and we we have to work with them. The problem with so much of the rhetoric in the United States is that we seem to truly believe that hegemony is a normal state of affairs and that the United States has some sort of God-given right to be preeminent in all of the seas and, and all of the airspace uh, throughout the Pacific. And I guess in a certain sense, ever since the U.K. removed its colonies east of Suez, that's been less of an issue. And I think in some ways you guys are closer to acting like grown-ups when it comes to China rather than the hysteria that we see over here in the United States. Well, I think the UK is a bit more parochial these days and, you know, a smaller, weaker country than the US as well. And it's probably about to become more so because of leaving the European Union. So um, we're the, in the UK probably more desperate for friends, maybe. <laughs> right. America seems to be increasingly adept at losing friends. Uh, I think you guys are some of the last ones we truly have. And uh, a lot of people over here want to blame our friends whenever they don't stand by us. And my perception has been we push friends away through our uh, hegemonic activities and just our obtuse viewpoints of the world. You know, just to close up the China topic, Admiral Stavridis did give in this article that I'm covering a few kind of bullet points of what we could do a little more effectively with China. And I thought some of them were worth mentioning. He says we have to use true long-term thinking. In other words, the United States is indeed a Pacific power, but we have to make sensible accommodations to reflect the power and reach of China. Whether we like it or not, China is the first or second largest economy in the world, and it's going to continue to grow. There's no sense moving towards a warlike posture in the South China Sea. The second thing he talks about is conducting international coalition building. We cannot appear to encircle or contain or intimidate China. Sure, it's great to build stronger coordinated approaches with Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and other friends and partners, and of course to work with India, which is a natural ally, the largest democracy in the world, although imperfect, and in some ways uh, uh, an obvious competitor with China. 
But we cannot appear to be encircling them the way we encircled the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Otherwise, China is going to perceive us as a threat. It's important, I think, that we retain a values-based approach. We saw that Xi Jinping just won a vote to essentially become president for life, or at least to not have any limit on how long he can serve as premier in China. One of the strengths of the United States, at least until 9-11, until our ill-advised wars, was that you know even though they were executed imperfectly, we retained a values-based approach. And, and that alternative vision uh, was often more amenable to a lot of countries than, than the Chinese authoritarian vision. Overall, we've got we've to re-engage in trade. You know, both President Trump and eventually Hillary Clinton turned against the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which just seems like a terrible idea as China continues to grow. If we cut ourselves out of the economic loop, then the last tool we're going to have left is military. And Henry and I, I don't know how many times we've talked about this, Henry, but it seems like over here in the fortress on a hill that was once a city on a hill, you know, the United States is more and more reliant on that military side of the power. Uh, we, what we need is a real strategy with China that connects a, ends, ways, and means and uh, move away from this reactive policy to China that's inherently militaristic. You know, finally, I think the, uh, you know, some of the spokesmen over in Beijing, they, they took a jibe at us the other day in, uh, in mid-February. They the Chinese foreign ministry said that, that, look, America, there's no such thing as absolute security, that our sense of insecurity, the United States' sense, is, quote, beyond comprehension. And essentially, we need to be less sensitive and realize that we have to grow together. I hate to say it, but the Chinese foreign ministry makes a whole lot more sense than most mainstream American politicians on this issue. And uh, Henry, any thoughts on overall policy towards China and some of the things we're driving at? Um. We've reported a lot lately about what's going on with weapons sales between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. and that China is always on our tail as far as weapons sales go. Um, you know, China has recently started have they're going to be making more and more of their own drones. They're you know essentially a ripoff of a of an American version of the Predator, but because of they're just better at what they do, those kind of opportunities are not just going to be presented from the U.S. I also think about uh, China has offered to help uh, Saudi Arabia mine, uh, mine uranium. We, <clears throat> we uh, are working on contracts right now for the U.S. to design um, new nuclear reactors. It seems like it, if, if we're not right there to give them those kind of things, China is going to be right there on our tail. So there's a but but over here it's it's a matter of it's a matter of principle as far as selling it to them. Um, in in terms well, of well, that's just it. You know, with, ever since President Trump has come in and he's distanced himself from the world on things like the Paris Climate Accords, it, it provides this vacuum, this space for Xi Jinping and his more authoritarian Chinese model yes. to step in as the true globalists. Right? We have France saying. American scientists come to France where you can do your work in peace. And we have Xi Jinping on the world stage saying, no, no, China is going to lead the world on the existential threats like climate change. It, the space that we've provided for China uh, almost makes it inevitable that they pass us not only in economic clout, but potentially in, uh, in a values-based approach or, or a global uh, accounting. And of course, with the UK leaving the, uh, the European Union, there's certainly a populist backlash, I think, that, that is across the Atlantic on uh, 
sort of retrenchment and going back to an older view of foreign policy. So our second headline and our, our last headline for today is, well, something that happened this morning. And that is that uh, President Trump finally ousted uh, Rex Tillerson, his Secretary of State. I think we've mentioned on this pod a few times that there have been more rumors in the reality TV-style Trump administration than any other administration that we've lived through. There's constantly talk that National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster is on his way out, that Rex Tillerson's on his way out. I was I pulled up an article today from November of this past year where we were already talking about how Tillerson's on the way out. But yeah. finally, this morning it was announced that President Trump has fired Rex Tillerson. And he is being replaced by former head of the CIA or current head of the CIA, Mike Pompeo. And I've got a lot to say about that. And we went to the same school, Mike Pompeo and I. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say that uh, Mike Pompeo is a West Pointer, graduated first in his class, which was the first thing that President Trump mentioned, because he does love his generals. He does love his military men. Yes, he does. So the first thing he said was, Mike graduated first in his class at West Point, served with distinction in the United States Army, and then he went on and on and on. When I look at Mike Pompeo, and I was no big fan of Rex Tillerson. I, I, I didn't support his nomination. I don't like the concept of, of business people with a profit motive running the affairs of state. But compared to Pompeo, I'm afraid we're going to end up missing Rex Tillerson. Keep in mind that Rex Tillerson uh, allegedly called President Trump a moron, uh, which uh, is hard not to agree with. He allegedly... Uh, spoke to him with uh, with some authority in favor of maintaining the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. And uh, on a few other points, he certainly diverged from the Trump line. Secretary uh, Pompeo, on the other hand, or Director Pompeo, uh, has really proved to be a supplicant for the Trump administration. He actually crosses the bridge every day from Virginia and gives the CIA presidential daily briefing himself as the director. He's very popular with President Trump. And as one writer for the National Interest wrote, this is back in November, quote, if you had to create a conservative American politician in a test tube, you might come up with Mike Pompeo. And quite frankly, I think that's right. Um, this is a guy who is an old school neoconservative. He is a guy that scares me because he has the potential to marry together the traditional neoconservative right, I'm talking George W. Bush, I'm talking Dick Cheney, I'm talking Don Rumsfeld, I'm talking the guys who brought us the disaster in the Middle East. He can marry those guys together with the right-wing white nationalist populists of Steve Bannon and that wing of the Republican coalition. In that sense, Pompeo becomes the nightmare candidate. He becomes the nightmare candidate because he is a complete, uh, he is a complete sycophant for Trump. He has been highly hawkish and in favor of every single expansion of the U.S. military project in the greater Middle East. When he was a Kansas representative in the House of Representatives, he represented the district that the Coke Industries was headquartered in. So we're talking big money for the Republican Party. And in the Fox News era, he was one of the stars of the Benghazi hearings that went on for, who knows, years during the first Obama administration. Pompeo, as head of the CIA, has come out and said that the intelligence community's assessment is that Russian meddling 
that took place did not affect the outcome of the 2016 election, right after which his own CIA issued a clarifying statement and many other mainstream media outlets blasted him for that remark. Stephen Walt from Harvard, a pretty esteemed scholar, has said that he thinks that uh, Pompeo will be the most politically motivated CIA director since perhaps William Casey. Pompeo rode to victory in Congress in 2010 in the Tea Party wave. You know, Henry, we talked, what, two episodes ago during one of my rants about politicians I hate, and we talked about Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton, of course, the senator from Arkansas. He himself is a staunch neoconservative, staunch proponent of the Iraq War, refuses to admit that the Iraq War was ill-advised or may have been detrimental to the Middle East. And here we've got Pompeo, who essentially runs on the same line. It's as though the worst aspects of the George W. Bush neoconservative trend in American politics married itself up with the worst white nationalist wing of the Tea Party and Steve Bannon. The only good story coming out of this is it appears that President Trump is not going to place Tom Cotton in Pompeo's old role as CIA director, which I think we talked about in a previous episode, right, Henry, about how Tom Cotton was a front runner for this CIA spot. Oh, yeah, it would be a disaster for him to have that job. I'm frightened that what this means for the potential of war with Iran. I wrote an article about this fairly recently in Defense One. I think that war with Iran, whether it was a local war or, or regime change war, would be an absolute disaster, not only for the United States, but for the Middle East. And yet people like Tom Cotton and now people like Mike Pompeo taking over as Secretary of State are some of the biggest Iran hawks in the administration. And, and, and I'm going to let it go for the most part. But, you know, Henry, you talked before we started about about Yemen and how we're going to have this great conversation with, with Iona about Yemen and the role of Iran there. And it's, it's all very fascinating because for a person like Mike Pompeo, if you follow his statements, it all connects. Behind every rock in the Middle East, behind every purported problem in the Middle East, he sees Iran. And so does H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor. And so does Secretary Mattis, the Secretary of Defense. So now we have this, this trinity of uh, Iran hawks who are going to be at the front of our government. And, and I am terrified about what that, what that means for the U.S. military, what that means for vets like us who realize the madness of regime change in the Middle East. It's uh, it's absolutely frightening. Yeah, that was my first concern when I heard the news about Rex Tillerson, actually, what happens to the Iran deal now? Because um, it's disastrous, um, and not just in the Middle East, because the repercussions will be felt far beyond um the souring of the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran, that will impact everybody, even down to the person filling up their fuel tank of their vehicle. They'll get torn up and thrown out. Um, yeah, there's going to be backlash. There's going to be You know, that's something people forget about the Iran deal is many American, you know, consumers of media think the deal is just between Barack Obama personally and you know the ayatollah in iran and they don't realize that the jcpoa is actually you know the p5 plus one so in other words all five members of the security council are signed on to this including the united kingdom as well as germany of course which is a, is a significant economic and military power and it does not appear 
that any of the other signatories in that J in, in that P5 plus one are ready to jump out of the deal except the United States. So if Pompeo advises Trump to pull out of the deal, which he appears willing to do, we are going to be isolated again, just like we talked about on the China issue. Now we're going to be isolated on the Iran deal because there is no indication that the United Kingdom, unless unless I'm mistaken, Iona, uh, no indication that the United Kingdom wants to pull out of the deal and certainly uh, none of the other signatories. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think a lot of people do forget that this is a broader deal that was um, done internationally. It's not just a U.S.-Iran thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, the U.S. will find themselves very much alone if, if they're wanting to withdraw from it. Absolutely. And, and there we are again. You know, there we are again, leaning on military force, leaning on a hawkish agenda and hyper-interventionism in the Middle East. And then we are surprised when other uh, other major powers in the world aren't behind us. It, it, it seems like we keep getting ahead of everyone militarily, look over our shoulder and find out that we're alone. And then we berate everyone for not following us. And it, it, it seems like a vicious, vicious cycle. And uh, and, and it, we, Henry just added to the, our, our segment on the annals of American militarism, because I think this fits right in. Absolutely. So um, Henry already introduced uh, Iona, and she's been nice enough to get involved uh, in some really substantive ways in our conversation about China and uh, and about the Iran deal and uh, Secretary uh, or future Secretary Mike Pompeo. And I, I assure the listeners, uh, she had no idea what we were going to talk about. So uh, that, that's how you know that we have a bright guest uh, who is ready to jump in in a substantive way. But Iona, the, you know, the first question I wanted to ask you, and I don't purport to be an expert on the war in Yemen, but I... Uh, I do have a pretty significant interest, and I've written a few articles about it, and I know why I got interested in Yemen, but you have been so immersed, you know, for coming up on a decade, decade now on this topic, that what I wanted to ask is, you know, why Yemen? You know, what was it that got you first interested in studying this topic and the, and the many wars and humanitarian catastrophes there, and what has continued to motivate you to stay on this topic? Well, back in 2010, when I, I was looking at moving out to Yemen, it was curiosity more than anything else. Um, I wanted to work in, in the Middle East as a journalist. Um, but at the same time, I didn't want to be in somewhere like Cairo or Beirut, where there are scores of journalists knocking around. Um, my father had worked in the Middle East most of his life, but had actually never been to Yemen. And I started reading about Yemen and kind of became fascinated. And then I thought, right, I'll go and see the kind of Yemen experts in, in, in London. And that took all of about a day because there were very few. Um, so, yeah, I moved out to Yemen in uh, October 2010. Um, and I thought I'd do that for a couple of years initially. Um, but then, of course, I didn't anticipate covering uh, a revolution within six months of, of arriving um, when the Arab Spring started. And... And the political uprising started in, in Yemen um, in February 2011. And then I just kind of stuck with it, really. I think um, I became obviously uh, fascinated by the story. And Yemen is, it is complicated, but um, I never call myself an expert on Yemen, having covered it now exclusively for eight years. I'm a specialist because you will never get to the bottom of, of the dense politics and, and players in the country. So it, it continues to be interesting. Um, but now I, I guess I have a strong emotional attachment to the place. I, I lived in the capital, Sana'a, 
uh, for longer than I've lived in any other city in the world in my adult life. It, it, it became my second home. So although I left um, living there at the end of, of, of 2014, when the the war escalated and the, and the Saudi coalition got involved in, in the civil war in March 2015, and it was immediately almost impossible for journalists to access the country, um, and I was able to make it back in, um, it then just became really important for me you know, to, to tell the story, really. Um, Yemenis, for the four, year, four and a half years whilst I were living, was living there, um, were so welcoming and opening their doors to me wherever I went across the country, you know, telling me their stories. And then by March 2015, it was, it was almost about returning that favour and about going and, um, and telling their stories when they needed to be heard and, and really urgently heard. So, so yes, um, and I've been going backwards and forwards um, ever since now, since, since the start of the, of the conflict and since it escalated in March 2015. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit of a one-trick pony, but um, uh, I, I still, I still can't drag myself away from Yemen. Well, that, that's really great. And over here, where I think most Americans, and I'm sure it's true in the UK as well, can't probably find Yemen on a map and, and know very little about it. I, I have also found it to be an extraordinarily interesting topic. And now, with everything that's gone on since the escalation in 2015, we find the United States. Uh, and we'll get into this later, you know, highly involved, highly complicit uh, to a degree that I think most citizens uh, in the in this country aren't aware. And uh, and that is really disturbing. And uh, I think Henry and I have both had the experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan where we also found that the people in those countries, though they are often demonized uh, back here in the States, were for the most part extraordinarily wel welcoming people, just as you've described for the Yemenis. And I, I think that um, that kind of explains uh, our passion for the region. And uh, so there, I think there's nothing wrong with being a one-trick pony because with Yemen being so complicated, I, I think it takes at least that many years to get to what you call the specialist level. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be able to do my job um, or the way that I do it and cover the stories that I do without having had that kind of background history of, of living and working in the country for so long to then be able to do what I do during the conflict. And it's really only down to Yemenis that I can do the reporting that I do. They, they are the I, you know, I stay in Yemenis homes. I don't stay in hotels when I when I go back there. They, they, you know, drive me around the country. I have um, good relationships with a kind of basically a small team of Yemeni friends, really, in, in different cities on both sides of the conflict, um, who help me out. And, and without that, you know, um, I shouldn't be able to do my job. And I think that's it's kind of like a beat journalist on any other. In, in any other area that would be covering for for a, for a newspaper or, or a TV um, organization is that you have your beat and, and you get to know it really well and you have people that you rely on to do that. And I think um, in, in foreign reporting, that's where a lot of the freelancers kind of fill the gap because they're the ones that are, are sort of sticking to the story um, for many months, if not years at a time when your 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 average TV correspondent will be jumping into one country for a maximum of sort of a week or two weeks and then leaving and going somewhere else. And um, really to, to to do the kind of um, deep dive coverage, you've got to be you know immersed in, in that in that country or in that in that beat for, for for many years really to be able to to be able to understand it and work on it fully. That's it. it's absolutely incredible to uh um, 
to be able to spend that that kind of time with the people to be able to and the you know the tribal and cultural distinctions you know like you mentioned you we couldn't take the 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 relationships that you've made there and transfer them over specifically let's say to Iraq if I if I did a similar you know beat it, it, it's it's that specific but we as Americans I, I think actually the world over we don't give people who live in the Middle East those kind of distinctions you know an American can say that I'm you know I have Irish and Scottish and, and German and we, we can talk about all these other places that we connect ourselves to but for some reason people from the Middle East aren't given that space as well and it, it just, just you know generally Americans we just we 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 dehumanize them and I think that that's a it's made it a lot easier to sell our our continued uh, warmongering in the region. Well, Henry, also, you know, you and I, when we go to Iraq or Afghanistan or, or now there are American soldiers in, in Yemen and Somalia and other areas in the region, we go for six months, we go for a year, yeah, we plop in, we roll out, we're behind sunglasses and body armor and helmets and Humvees, and we live ensconced on these bases, and even though we have a wonderful opportunity, as you said, to, to meet Iraqis and to meet Afghans, we have nothing like Iona's experience no, it's not you know, yeah. we, you know, just among the people, among friends, not behind an armored vehicle, not causing fear uh, of of collaboration when we talk to people. So th this is really uh, just a great treat for us. So, um, so I wanted to ask. We had mentioned talked a little bit earlier about Iran, and I didn't realize uh, this until recently that uh, they there have been six wars in the country between the Houthis and the Saleh government from 04 to 2010. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And, and that was mainly how the whole um, thing pointing it around started because Saleh um, president wanted international help, specifically from the U.S., to fight the Houthis. Um, and his thing is always that they are allies with um, um, later on in the race in order to try and get the U.S. to help him in his fight against them. Um, at that time, the U.S. said, no, we're not going to help you. Uh, that, some of that came out in the WikiLeaks tables in, in kind of 2010 and beginning of 2011 um, on the basis that they are just a local insurgency. They are no threat to the U.S. Um, or U.S. personnel. And so we're not going to help you in, in, in this fight. Um, of course, then um, when Saleh was, uh, resigned from power and uh, his vice president took over Hadi. He made the same claims that the Houthis were were allied to Iran. Um, and then Saleh being Saleh, um, because he wanted to, to claw his way back to power, he actually joined up with the Houthis um, and was really the main main reason this, this civil war started back in 2014. But of course, uh, along with all of that, the, the Saudis um, joined in this kind of chorus of um, their Iranian proxy and um, and that was really their reason for, for intervening in the conflict in Yemen in, in 2015, um, because uh, the now crown prince, he was then minister of defense, Mohammed bin Salman, um, was, uh, yeah, calling the Houthis an Iranian proxy. And of course, it, it, this is what has dragged uh, the Saudis into this war that has now been going on for three years. Um, much like uh, many U.S. wars, I think the Saudis went into it with the... Um, thinking that it would last a couple of weeks and that it would be an air war and it would be nice and clean and, and they'd be able to extract themselves. And of course, 
um, that hasn't happened in any shape or form. And of course, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Houthis aren't even necessarily of the same branch of Shiism as the Iranians. The Houthis are Zaidi Shias, right, rather than the Twelver Shia of Iran. And I think most American policymakers, even at the tops of Washington, don't even understand the nuance within the religion. And they assume that just because both have the notional or nominal title of Shia, that they must be complicit with one another. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this was the problem at the beginning of the conflict, particularly in Yemen, when everybody tried to put the sectarian element onto the conflict when it started about a political power struggle between the old presidents and his replacements, so between two presidents. And yeah, the, the Zaidi Shias are actually um, religiously closer to the Shafi'i Sunnis in Yemen than they are to the, to the Shia of Iran. Um, and Unfortunately, it has become a bit self-fulfilling in the sense that um, some of the fighting elements within the, the war in Yemen um, have taken this on as a religious conflict, uh, where the fighting kind of originated in, in the stronghold, the Houthi stronghold in the north of the country. There was um, a very famous Salafi school there that was funded by Saudi Arabia that had been established um, in the 70s and early 80s. And Salafis there were, were essentially driven out of that school in the, in the end. And um, for, for some of those uh, Salafis that were connected to that school, they much they see it very much as a religious conflict and, and it's about revenge ultimately for them. But that's a very small proportion of those who were involved in this war. Um, but I think, uh, I mean, that was a, a real big pushback from a lot of people, journalists like myself and people who knew Yemen very well at the beginning of the conflict, was the attempt to put this sectarian element onto the conflict when that didn't that wasn't really the core of it and wasn't what people were fighting about um, mainly uh, as well the the Iranian thing has has, has become self-fulfilling in many ways um, yes the Houthis were allied politically to Iran in many respects um, as, as certainly as an underdog in one of those wars that we mentioned before from 2004 to 2010 uh, and uh, but since then, um, you know, the Saudis have repeatedly, like I say, called the Houthis a proxy. They're definitely not controlled by Iran. They've, nobody's ever been able to control the Houthis since they existed in the 1990s. And even if you go back to, to the Obama administration, when the Houthis in September 2014, there, um, certainly the U.S. Um, or that the Iranians at Tehran had actually tried to stop the Houthis from doing that. Um, so uh, it, it, they were then they'd certainly gone rogue by that stage. Um, but what has happened in, in the convening years, really, over the, over the last few years of this war, is um, particularly the issues of, of ballistic missiles being fired by the Houthis into Saudi Arabia over the border. Um, there has been um, certainly some involvement in, in training of, of Houthi forces, both in military um, tactics as well as being able to, um, certainly from my understanding, is to modify the ballistic missile arsenal in Yemen in order to create these longer-range ballistic missiles that have reached further into the kingdom. That's um, nowhere on, you know, on parallel with the Iranian involvement in places like Syria. We're not talking sort of thousands, even hundreds um, of Iranian forces. We're talking about a handful of uh, revolutionary guards um, and also some overlap with the trainers from, from Hezbollah and with individuals being taken out of Yemen for to Lebanon for, the, for that kind of training. 
Um, of course, you know, really, if, if the Iranians want to antagonize the Saudis, it's a very cheap way of them doing it. Um, and so it's very little input on their part for potentially a huge amount of gain. Um, particularly, this kind of goes back to what we were just discussing about the Iran deal. If that is kind of thrown up and thrown back at Tehran and they choose to retaliate, um, that could well happen. In, in Yemen because they have that option. It could happen in Syria. Maybe Iranian forces would, would decide to attack directly. But as we know with the, these kind of conflicts now, it often tends to be less direct than that kind of action. And so um, you know, Iran has the opportunity to, to really antagonize Saudi Arabia purely by this very sort of pretty minimal assistance it's, it's given to the Houthis in the form of training in how to modify the missiles that they have. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's a kind of going back to Iran will potentially lead to, to a successful ballistic missile um, detonation in a, in a civilian or or, or, um, or possibly, you know, airport target in, in somewhere like Riyadh. And that's obviously a, a major concern. Yeah. And that obviously would cause an enormous amount of escalation. You know, listening to you talk about how the war has morphed and how the Iranian involvement has become a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, it's hard not to sit back here as an American who's experienced these wars in the greater Middle East for 17 years and, and not uh, chuckle almost for a second because it's so absurd. In 2003, um, the president of the United States, President Bush, didn't even know the difference between Sunnis and Shia in Iraq. He didn't seem to understand that there was a difference. And now fast forward 10 or 12 years and American politicians and American policymakers and military officers now we want to see everything through a sectarian lens, even when it's not the appropriate filter with which to see it. And so I think it's very fascinating how uh, a country like the United States, which didn't understand the intricacies of sectarianism, now wants to point to sectarianism as the driving factor when, as you said, early in the war, maybe it wasn't even necessarily the main driver of what was a, a really a local political conflict over power. It still isn't really. At the, at the local level, people are, are not fighting for the re religious reasons. Like I say, there are there are kind of a few thousand Salafis who would be and add on, you know, Al-Qaeda, obviously, onto, onto the top of that. But ultimately, your average person fighting on the ground in Yemen is not doing so for, for sectarian or, or, you know, or strong religious reasons. So can you talk to us ever so briefly, you know, I don't expect a history lesson or a full accounting of the front lines, but could you talk to us about the state of Yemen now, where things stand? And I'm talking about on a military uh, and the humanitarian situation. You know, wh where is the war, you know, two and a half years in and uh, what's the state of the conflict? Well, the front lines on the, on the military side haven't really shifted much since the end of 2015. So about nine months into the war, um, the main fighting areas and, and the kind of territory um, breakdown, much of it runs along similar lines to the old north-south border when Yemen was two separate countries prior to 1990 when they were unified. Um, so that obviously brings with it a whole lot of historical issues, um, particularly over the issue of, of southern independence in, in parts of, of, of South Yemen. Um, but, uh, but, I mean, those fighting, fighting lines really now are focused um, just north of the capital, Sana'a, to the east, um, along this old southern border that I mentioned, and then along the Red Sea coast, where there has been a little bit of shift in, in the last couple of months um, since the death of, of the former President Saleh. 
so militarily, things have been bogged down for, for literally, you know, over two years now. Very little change on, on the fighting front. Um, meanwhile, on the humanitarian side, obviously, things have got dramatically worse. Uh, I mean, the figures for, for deaths in the conflict now, um, although it appears the UN stopped counting at the end of 2016 at, at the, at the 10,000 mark, um, the children estimates that some 50,000 people died um, in, uh, outside of the conflict as a result of the humanitarian crisis and curable diseases just last year. So 50,000 people estimated died as a knock actually just dying in the violence itself. Uh, what does that mean on the ground? That means when, when I go back there each time, you see more and more children dying of starvation, um, both in villages and in, in medical centres across the country. Less than 50% of the country's hospitals are now operating. Out of a population of 27 million people, 22 million are now in need of humanitarian aid. Uh, one of the policies that the Saudi coalition deployed um, early in the conflict was the restriction on import, what has been called the blockades on the country. Yemen, in peacetime, imported 90% of it. Um, and the majority of that came through maritime import, uh, particularly through the Red Sea port of Hodeida, which um, is under the control of the Houthis. Um, and now imports have been heavily restricted into that. What that means is it's got this very lucrative war economy that has scattered imports into other ports in the south of the country, but also over the land borders, so many hundreds and thousands of miles away to uh, Oman, and ironically, stuff is coming over the border from Saudi Arabia. And all of that means that there are private individuals in the political elite on both sides of the conflict and individuals on the ground who are making a lot of money out of the war economy and have no interest in finding a political solution to this conflict. That. The civilian population means food is incredibly expensive, there is economic collapse, there's the devaluation of the currency because of the war, government wages haven't been paid for the best part of two years, and although there is food in the market, in most places, people simply cannot afford to buy it. So people can't afford to eat um, because, of the, because of the impact of the conflict. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read, and remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.